I really am glad that you made it today. I hope that your hearts are literally strengthened. That in spite of the lousy travel, in spite of the beauty, in spite of the work that it takes, well, the extra work that each one of you had to go through, I, I trust your hearts really are strengthened. As I was traveling on Rand Road pretty early this morning, um, it was a little disheartening. Not, again, that things didn't seem to be that plowed, but I just started praying. I said, Lord, I know that there are people who are discouraged, and I know there are people who are hurting, and I know there are people that, that need to be able to praise you with all their hearts, that me, need to meet with God's people. And I bet the enemy is going to use this somehow to derail or disrupt. I'm glad the enemy didn't win with you. And I trust that as you leave today, you will begin to see all that God has for each one of us. You know, it's week 16 of our Gospel of John series. We meet every week as a community to worship. And partly we pray and we sing and we praise and we open up God's Word. We're teaching families here to know and obey and enjoy Christ so that we might be able to make him known. The Apostle John has been giving us some snapshots of Jesus. We're finding out that John loved Jesus. More than anything, just because John's whole life and his whole perspective were completely and radically changed. <coughs> Excuse me. Radically changed because he met this man. We find out in the last part of the book of John that there was an agenda. And he desired more than anything that we might continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. all of a sudden, um, would one of you kind folks go to my office, in the top right drawer, uh, there are some, oh, you have something. I'm very grateful. Thank you. This didn't happen until just now, I promise. Hmm. Very good. But each week we watch Jesus and learn from Jesus. He's the Son of God, the Messiah, the King, the Savior. And what's so very cool is that Jesus came to earth seeking out the lost and the wandering in order to be able to give them hope. In John's Gospel, we have seen Jesus do some pretty amazing things. He offered to rescue the religious lost and the lost lost. He's been pouring his life into a group of aimless disciples, often confused in order to build their faith. 
He's done some amazing things with his disciples, like walking on water and teleporting them immediately to a destination. It certainly has the disciples' attention, and they recognize that Jesus is different. Some of them are starting to lean toward this Messiah thing. He restores people physically, emotionally, and spiritually. And for the past two years, most of the crowds have been enamored with Jesus. There's a larger following now that's, that's hanging out with the Lord. But something happened. They wanted to make him king. But they knew that, or, but Jesus knew it just wasn't God's way. Jesus continued to shock the crowds and angered the religious when he proclaimed that he was the Son of God and that he was the promised Messiah. It was at this time that Jesus seemed to draw a line in the sand as he begins his third and final year of ministry. As we focused on a few weeks ago, we saw that Jesus said that he was the bread of life. The only one who is able to be able to fill the hole in your heart. The only way that you would experience both abundant life and eternal life would be by having a relationship with this Jesus. It was a new message, a fresh message. But when the folks finally heard it, there was a hush. They stopped. They maybe rubbed their eyes. Are are you sure you just said that, Jesus? Your words seem way too radical. We're not understanding all this. And then last week, if you're with us, there was a mass exit. I shared with you that probably Jesus was speaking to a group of about 300. That's about what a normal synagogue would hold. And maybe there was even more because Jesus' reputation had gone before and, and people were just coming from all over just trying to hear his words. At the end, after they understood all that Jesus said, Twelve guys remained. Everyone else had left. Now I'd like to respond just a little bit to last week's message. If you heard it live or whether you heard it online, uh, it has caused at least quite a bit of a discussion among us and even in my household as we kind of looked at what was Jesus saying? We know that there's a lot of things that happen between John chapter 6 and John chapter 7. We know that Jesus really did about six months of ministry, and we're going to actually even look a little bit more of that today. But he seemed to continue to walk down this path of defining what it means to be a disciple. And he seemed to clarify, well, make it crystal clear for all of us. And he said this, if you're going to be a disciple, if you're going to be a follower, not just a crowd that's, well, in the audience, you're going to need to do three things. 
Think less of yourself. Expect that there will be suffering if you follow me. And you need to follow me. You need to submit to me. And again, this seems rather normal for us. We've heard these texts. We've heard these stories. But for these folks, again, it was very clarifying. And I shared with you that sometimes our culture and our families will get mixed up and go different directions. I used an illustration of my dad and how as a pastor he was so very, very focused on ministry. And that there were times that I was neglected. I want you to hear from me again as I, as I, as I share. I respect my dad. But I don't think my dad always made the best decisions or the greatest decisions. But I know this, that any follower of Jesus will seek first his kingdom. And that if you are following and listening and submitting to God, that you will know absolutely how much time to give ministry versus family. And it's even hard to even say that because truthfully, it's not one or the other. Oftentimes God gives us family or scenarios or situations or people at work or whatever it is that we might be able to pour our lives into and make disciples. So there were a bunch of people that left. A bunch of people that said, no, I do not want to be less selfish. I do not want to suffer. And I do not want to follow you because your words are way too hard. My encouragement last week to you, and will still be this week, that is where you'll find life. When Jesus said he was the bread of life, and absolutely the only one that will be able to fill your emptiness and give you the ability to live large, he meant it. It goes against everything that we think. And so there they are, the twelve. The remaining folks. And six months pass. All kinds of different things are going on. But that's where we pick up chapter 7. And we're going to start reading from verse 1 through 24. And I've asked Karen to read for us this text. If you don't have your Bibles or don't have it open on your flat screens, you can Look up at the screen, but it's John chapter 7, starting at verse 24. After this, Jesus traveled around Galilee. He wanted to stay out of Judea, where the Jewish leaders were plotting his death. But soon it was time for the Jewish festival of shelters, and Jesus' brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, where your followers can see your miracles. You can't become famous if you hide like this. If you can do such wonderful things, show yourself to the world, for even his brothers didn't believe in him. Jesus replied, Now is not the right time for me to go, but you can go any time. The world can't hate you, but it does hate me, because I accuse it of doing evil. You go on. I'm not going to the festival, because my time has not yet come. After saying these things, Jesus remained in Galilee. Galilee. 
But after his brothers left for their festival, Jesus also went, though secretly, staying out of public view. The Jewish leaders tried to find him at the festival and kept asking if anyone had seen him. There was a lot of grumbling about him among the crowds. Some argued, he's a good man, but others said, he's nothing but a fraud who deceives the people. But no one had the courage to speak favorably about him in public, for they were afraid of getting in trouble with the Jewish leaders. Then midway through the festival, Jesus went up to the temple and began to teach. The people were surprised when they heard him. How does he know so much when he hasn't been trained, they asked. So Jesus told them, my message is not my own. It comes from God who sent me. Anyone who wants to do the will of God will know whether my teaching is from God or is merely my own. Those who speak for themselves want glory only for themselves. But a person who seeks to honor the one who sent him seeks truth, not lies. Moses gave you the law, but none of you obeys it. In fact, you are trying to kill me. The crowd replied, replied, you're demon-possessed. Who's trying to kill you? Jesus replied, I did one miracle on the Sabbath, and you were amazed. But you work on the Sabbath, too, when you obey Moses' law of circumcision. Actually, this tradition of circumcision began with the patriarchs long before the law of Moses. For if the correct time for circumcising your son falls on the Sabbath, you go ahead and do it so not to break the law of Moses. So why should you be angry with me for healing a man on the Sabbath? Look beneath the surface so you can judge correctly. Let's pray. Father, we once again come before you recognizing that these are words of life. Father, there are so many times we wish that we could have been on the planet when you were here. And to be able to hear your words and to be able to watch you work and deal with people. And yet, Lord, we have so much more. We have the whole of the Bible in front of us. We have the Holy Spirit that continually teaches us. And we have the opportunity to be able to learn about our Father by watching you. Teach us today, Father. Help us understand who you are, what's important. Convict us in areas, God, that need to change and give us the strength and the perspective for this coming week. Lord, we do thank you again for the churches in this area, for all over the state, for in these United States and all over our world that are teaching and preaching your word. We know, Lord, that uh, some don't have very good facilities and some have amazing facilities. Some meet in very small groups and even in homes and, and others are large cathedrals. But Father, we pray more than anything that your name would be lifted up and that you would be pleased with your people, your kids, and that we would be encouraged and strengthened. We are grateful. We pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. A lot has happened in the six-month gap. But Jesus continues to preach and to heal and even feed the multitudes. There's another time that is mentioned in one of our Gospels that Jesus feeds 4,000 men. And then add on the ladies and the, and the children. 
But basically, he has stayed away from Judea or from Jerusalem because there's been a price on his head. After this initial two-year period, the religious leaders knew they need to get rid of Jesus. And so they spread the word. We want to know where he's at. We want to be able to take him down. We want to be able to destroy him. He is just causing too much grief. And so he did. He stayed away from Judea and spent most of these six months in the land or in the region of Galilee. And there he spent time working mostly with his disciples. But the scripture tells us that the eight-day festival of shelters was quickly approaching. (laughs) Most of you are going, yeah, the eight-day festival of weeks or booths. That sounds like a fun thing. Well, let me explain this to you. There are three festivals that all the males, at least those that were God-fearing males in Israel, were required to attend. They were the festivals of Passover, weeks, and booths. Lines by this time were somewhat blurred in the first century. Each festival served to remind the Jewish people of something their ancestors had learned about the Lord through a particular experience. So these were all good things. In this particular case, Jewish families would celebrate the Feast of Booths by building leafy, (coughs) thatched shelters and then living in them. The eight-day camping experience was held during the harvest time. And it was the time for each of these God-fearing families to be able to focus on the exit from Egypt, their wilderness wandering, and the entrance into the promised land. Now, even at this time, the celebration held even more meaning after the exile because all the Jews looked forward to the time when the Messiah would gather all of the nation and be able to restore them to a powerful place. So, it was ripe. It was ready. It was, again, something that at least the traditional Jewish families were looking forward to. Hey, the Messiah is going to come. This is going to happen. We spend our time heading to Jerusalem. You spend eight days living in a tent, and you focus on all the rich blessings that God has given to you. Remember, remember, remember. Well, Jesus was a God-fearing male. So for Jesus to be able to go to Jerusalem at this time, well, it would have been a normal thing. He had been there six months earlier at the Passover and has not gone back since. Now his brothers, as we find out in our text, they were not believers. They were not believers. Jesus had four half-brothers. We find the list in Matthew 13, 55. And Matthew lists their names, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. 
or most of us would know him as Jude, all right? But Jesus' brothers assumed, all four of them, that he would leave Galilee and go down to Judea to celebrate the Feast of Booths. This was a normal thing. And so they asked Jesus, are you coming? Now if you read through this and you look especially at verse 8, Jesus answers this, you go on. I'm not going to this festival because my time has not yet come. After saying these things, Jesus remained in Galilee. Then in the next verse, but after his brothers left for the festival, Jesus also went, though secretly, staying out of public view. Now, wait a minute. Did, did Jesus kind of lie right here? Well, we know he didn't. It, it's, it's, how do we understand this? What's going on? Well, in verse 8, realistically, what Jesus was saying is, I am not going with you to the festival. I'm not. Or actually, in some manuscripts, there would be another small word inserted, and it would be something like this. I am not going with you yet to the festival. But I don't want to get hung up on whether the yet is there or whether the you is understood. What Jesus was clearly saying was this. I have no intentions of going with you, my unbelieving brothers, to this festival. You have totally misunderstood why I'm here. I'm not going to go there and perform all these miracles and let everybody know that I'm the Messiah. My time is not come. I am going to reveal this to folks. But actually, guys, you don't even know this, but it's going to happen in about six months during the next Passover feast. But not now. Not now. Interesting how Jesus responds to his brothers. Gently, he shares truthfully that it's not the right time. But again, his brothers have been around for the two years of ministry. If Jesus started his ministry at about 30 years, he was the oldest brother, of course, but his brothers all hang out with him. They all saw how he responded to his parents. They all recognized how much scripture that he had learned and understood. And even at 12, we know that he was able to have a healthy conversation with the rabbis during that day. He was an extraordinary young man. Yes, he was God, but he also was completely human. He was like you and like me. But his brothers somehow didn't buy this Messiah thing. They didn't understand it. And actually, it just seems odd to me. You would think that if you literally were in the same household under the same roof as Jesus, you would have seen his kindness, his tenderness, his wisdom. That would have stuck out to you. But they didn't respond, at least at this time. In hindsight, though, if you look at this, it makes sense that Jesus didn't go right at the peak when everybody was traveling simply because there was a price on his head. So Jesus knew he was going. 
He wanted to go with his disciples, and he waited a few days before he traveled to Jerusalem. When he got to Jerusalem in our text, it says there's a lot of Jesus talk. The religious leaders were trying to find Jesus. There are a lot of people talking, hey, is he a fraud? No, he's the Messiah. And it just kept going on and on. Then about midway through the celebration, Jesus began to teach. Now again, that seems maybe a little odd, but rabbis were often given the opportunity in the uh, temple area to be able to teach. So this was not unusual, but what was unusual again is the people's response. They were amazed. They'd never heard anybody open up the scriptures like this rabbi opens up the scriptures. The things that he was able to say were amazing. What authority, what power. In fact, some ways, what humility. Because oftentimes when you have knowledge and you have the ability to speak or to, to share your heart, sometimes you let people know how great you are and how learned you are, and how many degrees you have. And Jesus didn't talk about anything like that. He just opened up and shared. People were amazed. Who teaches like this? Well, the quick answer is, the Son of God teaches like this. The, the person that knows God intimately, the person that for the last 32 years has spent time with his heavenly father and is, he is able to share from his heart what God has put on his heart. Jesus was consistent in his message. He basically at this time again didn't, well, get any lighter he shares that he is God and that his message comes from the Father and that God followers would know it. He's kind of given a little bit of a dig. Now in your bulletins, um, I, I gave you two handouts. One of the handouts is just called Jesus Outrageous Claims. And I just, there was no way that I'd be able to go through all of that in a, in a morning message uh, some of those things we have already covered. But I just want you to realize again how absolutely ludicrous Jesus' claims would have sounded to so many of the first century people. I mean, literally starting off, I am God. Oh boy. And you go through there. All the things that Jesus said. The Lord's challenge to the crowd was simple. If they humble themselves before God and His revealed Word, they would come to a sure realization that His teaching is true and that He is the Messiah. That challenge actually still stands 2,000 years later. If we humble ourselves before God in His revealed Word, we will see over and over again that He is Messiah, that He is Savior, that he is Lord. You see, what most of the folks, at least in his 
congregation didn't understand is that the law of Moses was given to reveal sin, not to save you. The Pharisees and the religious people had it all screwed or had it all reversed. They thought that if they could obey the law, it would bring them closer to God. Well, we find out, especially in Galatians chapter 3, verse 19, that no, the law was given. Well, there's probably six or seven reasons why the law was given, but a primary reason was to show us we can never attain, we can never make it, we can never fulfill it, we can never get into God's presence, we can never understand all that God wants, we can never have that relationship with God by trying to obey a law. God graciously extends salvation to each one who comes to him and responds to his unbelievably beautiful offer. An offer that cost him his life, but an offer that is still so beautiful today. The Jews had perverted the law to be the means of salvation and refused to be indicted by it or driven to the mercy of God in Messiah Jesus. No matter how much they studied and endeavored to apply the law, it was clear that they had failed. They refused to allow the law to do its intended work of convicting them and humbling them and driving them to repentance and faith in Jesus. Jesus basically said, you guys have read God's word, but you do not follow it. You are the inconsistent one. I am not. Jesus is saying that he hears from God and that he follows him. Jesus is accusing them of violating the actual law of Moses by wanting to kill him. Most of us know some of the Ten Commandments, and certainly you, you probably all know, thou shall not murder. This was a black and white issue, yet it was very clear that the religious wanted Jesus dead. Well, eventually, Jesus is accused of being demon-possessed. Jesus ignores the insult and continues his indictment, referring to the healing of the invalid by the pool of Bethsaida. This is an ironic turn, though. The religious officials were angry with Jesus and rebuked him for breaking the traditional man-made rules that had been substituted for the law of Moses. Jesus at this moment, and, and hopefully you'll catch this, seems to throw off his gloves. He tells them they are breaking their own interpretation of the law. Jesus says this, you break the law if you circumcise on the Sabbath. And really what he's saying, and I know you do. Jesus addresses both the Sabbath, which is perverted by man-made tradition, and circumcision, which is their most treasured right. Jesus literally is saying that circumcision, <laughs> circumcision would break some part of the man-made Sabbath laws which you guys have instituted. So, 
If the right of circumcision could overwrite their man-made Sabbath rules, why wouldn't the miraculous, God-orchestrated healing of a desperately infirmed man? The deeds of Jesus reflected the grace of God and did not violate the Sabbath. The religious officials condemned this act of mercy that Jesus made because it violated their man-made rules, which they themselves violated each time they circumcised a newborn on the Sabbath. Now again, all Jesus is doing is drawing a line in the sand. He is being so very, very clear, helping people understand about the law and about God's grace. He's shouting in some ways, begging these people to understand how inconsistent their man-made rules are and how they separate you from an amazing, loving God. Well, a few things actually jump out to me in these verses. Actually, three of them. First of all, making disciples is a decision. It takes a choice. You see, making disciples means both a public and a private ministry, and I think mostly private. There is a lot of private disciple time that happened in the six months between John chapter 6 and John chapter 7. What we have to understand again, and we can find this in, it's in Matthew chapter 15 to 18, Mark verse, or, or chapter 7 to 9, and especially in Luke chapter 9. All this stuff happened between this chapter. All this stuff happened in Galilee. All these things in these chapters came about, and most of them were not with large crowds. Most of them happened between Jesus and his 12 disciples. He gathered them together. After all the crowds left, he pooled his 12. And yes, there were times he went public, but most of the time, hey, let's get together. It was time that he huddled together in the 12 disciples. And he said, hey, who do people think I am? And there was a little bit of discussion. But in Matthew 16, Peter cries out, we know who you are. We know the people don't know this, but we know that you are Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus then took his disciples and started talking about death and suffering, saying, hey guys, and again, that was the text we've spent a whole lot of time with last week. You need to understand a few things about following me. Then I mentioned to you already uh, about the transfiguration and about how Jesus was teaching again his disciples privately about prayer and, and about how important it is in life. We also find out that in Matthew 18, um, there's a little bit of an argument with the disciples. And, and what Jesus does is get in the middle of it, and the argument is really who's the greatest in the kingdom? And so Jesus pulls his boys aside again. And he brings up a little child. 
And he says, hey, I just want you to know, you know who are great in the kingdom? They're people that have faith like this little child and who, and who are humble. It breaks all the rules, guys. You want to be big and powerful. What I want you to know is that this is what's important in my kingdom. These aren't with large crowds, okay? Then Jesus talks about conflict. Imagine that. He goes, hey, when there's brothers who are at each other or not seeing or not understanding, how do you deal with them? Well, you go personally, and then you bring a friend. And if for some reason all that doesn't work, the whole idea is that you want to help restore people. You see, when somebody falls away or somebody sins, it's not that you're to cast judgment like all you see the Pharisees doing. What you want to do is be able to share with them God's grace, help them understand all that God has for you, and bring them back and restore them to the fold. That's really different. And then Jesus also looked at um, different in various things as each one of us began to or as each one of the disciples began to wonder, one of the greatest of all the lessons that, that Jesus brought was about forgiveness. And it happened just before chapter 7 opens up. And Peter comes to him being rather self-righteous and says, you know what, Jesus, you're talking about forgiveness all the time. How many times do I actually have to forgive? And Peter goes, seven because you remember, well, the rabbis taught you need to forgive at least three times. So Peter thought he was being extra spiritual. Jesus, again, not in big crowds, pulls him aside and says, you know how many times you need to forgive is seven times 70. You just never, ever, ever stop forgiving. And how come he could say that is because he was modeling it all the time. So Jesus spent a whole lot of time, not with gigantic crowds, although crowds are okay, with 12 guys living life together, working with them, helping them understand. You see, I think discipleship must be a priority for our church. There's no doubt. The Lord did not commission the church to attract large crowds, but to go and to make disciples. As you live your life, make disciples. Point people to Jesus. Help them connect with God so that they might be able to help others connect with God. See, the measure of any church's success is not the size of its congregation, but the depth of its discipleship. So some of you are saying, well, Rick, do you grade our church? How are we doing? Well, the fact of the matter is all of us probably can grow in making disciples. Some of us forget what that really even looks like. But you have another handout in your bulletin, and I'd love for you to just look at that right now. And it's entitled, Better Together. And my encouragement today is, how do we make disciples or do life together better? 
I am certainly not even coming to a place and saying, you guys are not making disciples. I am not making disciples. There's not a report card here. But what I am saying is, is that our culture continually drives us apart. That we love doing our own thing, having our own rules, and not being accountable for anything. And yet, over and over and over again, it's modeled throughout all of the scriptures that we do life together. You see, as a pastor, I get a whole lot of phone calls, or I have a whole lot of meetings, and and oftentimes there's tragedy. Oftentimes there's, there's tremendous hurt. Oftentimes there's crises. And that's okay. That's part of what a shepherd does, is bring hope and encouragement. But one of the first questions I ask is, hey, are you part of a small group? Are you in a huddle? Who are you hanging out with? Who's bringing you food? Oh, Cross Point Church. Oh, whoa, 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 whoa. That's nice. I'm glad Cross Point. But who's your family? Who's helping you on this journey? Who's praying for you every single day so that you're able to hear from God and obey Him with great power and authority? Well, I, I go on Sundays, Rick. I'm glad you do. But let me ask it a different way. How are you growing? Who's part of your life? Now again, some very, very basic definitions on your sheets. But as I look at our church, some of these are not even functioning right now. But as a shepherd, I look at this and say, you know what? These are some areas we need to grow in. Life groups. Six to ten groupings of people who meet together. They know each other. They live life together. They, they eat together. They pray together. They open up God's Word together. They're accountable, but they know your journey. Huddles. Maybe a new word for some of you. But realistically, a little bit smaller group designed a little bit more in-depth disciple-making. Spur groups. Mentioned this a few weeks back where there's a group of men or women that get together that open up God's Word. They're reading through God's Word and asking the question, how am I obeying or disobeying? But meet every week. And do life together. Dinners of six. It's a little bit different, but, but we've got a lot of new folks. How, how do we get to know folks? Well, I'll tell you, realistically, it's by eating with each other. It's awesome. You invite people into your home, and you open that up, and you hear about their spiritual journeys. And, and then all of a sudden, when you come, you know one or two or three other people. Bible study groups. This perhaps has been one of our stronger suits, but, but we can grow in this area. There's men's groups and women's groups and adult groups. 
But times you come together, times you open up the Word, times where you dig in, times where you pray together and encourage one another, and then ministry groups. Perfect one would be just in front of you, the worship team. They come together. Now, you have to have certain talent to be in that ministry group, okay? Like, I've been wanting to join for a long time, and all they do is say no. I'm not exactly sure why, but might be my terrific voice. But we look at all these different things, and and so many are, are there, enlisted, Areas where you get to roll your sleeves up with one another. Areas where you pray together. Areas where you serve others. I look at this list and maybe some of you are part of that. But hopefully we're going to make this more and more available. And as people raise their hand, don't worry, not literally, But as you rip off that bottom section and you write down the information and you circle something that says, you know what, this might be something I need. So Rick, oh, I'm already part of this. You know what, I'm not here even judging you. I just know this, is that if we're going to make it, you're going to need family. You're going to need community. You're going to need people to encourage you on the journey. You cannot be encouraged just by podcasts or occasional Sunday attendance. It will not work. No matter how great or wonderful or terrific the community is. And so I would ask you, Jesus saw this in his ministry, in his last year of ministry, where he absolutely honed in, where all these different things happened, and he lived life. He wanted to make sure these guys got it. And I want to encourage you, even today, maybe God's put something on your heart. You can rip that that piece, put that in our offering plate. But we're going to keep asking. We're going to keep encouraging. And, and if we don't have something that's forming, my guess is God's going to prompt certain people to come together and take leadership, and we're going to work on that. But we want to be better together. You know, another thing that sticks out to me is that obedience takes faith. In this story, Jesus was obedient in spite of his death threats. Now, he also was connected with God well enough to know that it wasn't his time. But it still took courage for him to literally, well, be obedient and go to this festival. Once again, Jesus went against the culture. He represented God well. He did not whitewash his message. And I think Jesus teaches us how to make right decisions when circumstances are hard. I think if you're going to listen to Jesus in your everyday life, most of the time circumstances are going to be hard. But I got excited that Jesus knew what he needed to do and did it. And lastly, I think Jesus was gracious to his family. 
You know, so many times, and, and I'll tell you, parents, it's, it's hard to be a parent. You know, I, I, when that little baby boy or that little baby girl comes into the world and all these new parents are just so excited about this and this is so novel and this is beautiful and this is great, and from that time on, you lose sleep. You lose money. You, I, I mean, you can just look at just unbelievable the sacrifice that happens. And you pour yourself into these little ones. And you hope they make always the right choices and the decisions. And they're so wise and godly and loving and caring. And sometimes they are. But you know, it's so cool. We often think that if we do all the right things, don't we? If, if we have all the right devotions or we have all the right words and we have all the right activities that we send our kids to, that they're automatically just going to follow Jesus. You know what? I don't think that Jesus' brothers had a better example. I mean, they had God in their house. He never did anything wrong. It was amazing. Again, maybe it drives you away or maybe it doesn't, but you know what was so cool? Eventually, his brothers came to faith. In Acts chapter 1, verse 14, it took the resurrection. It took Jesus dying on the cross and then rising from the dead and meeting his four brothers before they said, whoa, <laughs> I get it. Jesus, you our Messiah. And they were part of this unbelievable movement. In fact, two of his brothers, James and Jude, penned the epistles that bear their names, and James became the head of the Jerusalem church. He didn't even respond until after the resurrection. How cool is that? There's hope. God loves your kids. God loves your family. And, and there are times when you just, your heart is broken because of choices or scenarios or situations. And I just want to say this. Is that you remain faithful. God is the one who's going to do the drawing. And maybe, maybe your kids will never come to faith. Or even walk with God. But you have the privilege of honoring God, listening to God, praying for those kids, and trusting God with the most precious possession that you've been given. I'm not trying to be hopeful and saying, well, some just never see Jesus. But there are times when life is hard. Let's pray. Father, we covered a lot of territory today. And I know, Lord, that uh, you showed us how to listen to your Father over and over again. You helped us understand what's important in life and what, put prior and what our priorities ought to be. You continually, God, um, we're patient, even with 
people that lived in your own household. You shared truth. I get it. But there's sometimes we're so slow. Lord, I pray that you would raise up a group of disciples right here in this church. That this fellowship would grow in community. And there would be people encouraging one another on this journey. That you, Father, would receive honor and glory for all that happens. And that we'd be energized because of our relationship with you. We love you. In your name, amen.